Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host, as always, Daniel Levy, your guest co-host, Andrew Gombas. Today, we're going to be talking about UFC 298. Alexander the Great Volkanovsky taking on Ilya El Matador Teporia for the UFC Featherweight Championship of the World. And my friends, it's going down this Saturday night live at the Honda Center in Anaheim, California. You got the pound for pound great. Alex Volkanovsky taking on an undefeated challenger who's brimming with confidence. And honestly, Andrew, I think this is one of the best title fights, not just of this year, but of the last five years. I agree. Thank you for having me. First of all, I'm really looking forward to diving into this card with you. But yeah, in regard to the main event title fight, I can't remember the last time I've been this excited for the 145 pound belt to be put on the line. And yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it later. Well, Andrew, let's not even waste any time at all. Let's get right down to business because in the main event and real quick, my last show, a lot of people were giving me shit about how I don't start with the first fight and I start with the main event. And uh, I was thinking, about what was the first fight of the night uh, last week? It was like a really low level fight. It, it was. Uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Um, was it Mar oh, Marcos versus. Aori was the first fight. Sorry, I'm thinking of the week before when it was Jamal Pogues versus Thomas Peterson. So yeah. I, I was like, sorry, I didn't talk about Jamal Pogues and Thomas Peterson before I talked about an epic main event. Like, my bad, right? Like, y'all would rather hear about that. But let's get right down to business, man, because in this main event, we got the champ, Alexander Volkanovsky, one of the pound for pound greats. He's 26 and three. He's taking on the undefeated challenger, Ilya Teporia, who's 14 and 0. And currently, they got it. It just depends where you look. You know, there's been a lot of action coming in both ways. But right now, as we sit here recording this on Tuesday, it's Alexander minus 135. The comeback on Ilya Teporia is plus 115. So, man, so many different ways to look at it. For example, when's the, next, when's the last time you're going to get a price uh, like this on Volk. Well, actually, his last fight, he was a plus 200 dog. So let's not even let's let's already debunk that myth. Um, but man, just looking at it stylistically, it's incredible. Volk really innovated a lot of things in this game. For example, his fainting game is so world-class. He's got guys mesmerized out there and he's so well-rounded. I mean, you think he's going to punch. That's when he kicks. You think he's going to kick. That's when he punches. You're expecting strikes. He can mix it up with level changes. His submission defense is second to none. As you saw in the Ortega fight, the volume can match and surpass, uh, someone like Max Holloway. And the guy's got balls of stone to go up there and challenge uh, Islam Akachev. Because think about this. Like, a lot of people said, oh, why didn't he take a couple warm-up fights at 55s? Dude, there's no point in that. If you watch Alex's regional scene, go go see what he did to Jamie Malarkey, okay? And then and then tell me with a straight face that he needs some kind of warm-up fight. Like, he was ready, man. It's just that, Ili uh, that uh, Islam's on a completely different level. And obviously, there's weight classes for a reason. But now he's coming back down. And there's the talk about, well, is he coming back too soon from the head kick knockout loss? Andrew, I'm not a doctor, bro. So I'm not going to be the guy that just writes off the great Volkanovsky because he got head kicked, you know, a few months ago. And on a side note, an irrelevant fact, both Alexander Volkanovsky and Ilya Taporia have both been dropped with head kicks in their career. Difference being was when Alex got dropped with the head kicks, he got knocked out both times. When Ilya got dropped with the head kicks, he actually recovered and finished both those fights. I'm referring to his first fight uh, prior to the UFC, and I'm referring to his fight with Jai Herbert, 
with Volk, I'm referring to the Islam fight. I'm referring to uh, some fight he had at 170 pounds where he got head kicked. I mean, look, this is irrelevant facts, but I, I felt like I should bring it up. Um, here's my thing with this matchup, because that's all that matters at the end of the day is how they match up stylistically, right? Like people talk about how, well, Volk boxed up Max and, and did all these things. But I'm thinking to myself, you know, these last few guys that Volk have been fighting, amazing fighters, uh, um, who's been fighting? Islam. He's been fighting Max Holloway. Yair, uh, a lot of great fighters, but think about it. What do all those guys have in common? They're all damn near six feet tall. Um, now he's finally going up against that kind of similar body type that he has, that short, stocky, explosive. And let me remind you what happened the last time he fought a guy with this body type, um, Andrew Gombas. You have to date all the way back to when he fought Chad Mendes, right? And what happened in that fight? It was pretty competitive at times. And Chad Mendes even dropped Volk and almost finished the fight. But you know the deal. Chad Mendes is a gasser. Chad Mendes is, you know, he doesn't have the output or the pace of a guy like Volkanovski. He doesn't have the cardio. He can't go five hard. He can throw like, like a maniac. He can knock anybody out, but he just can't maintain that pace. Whereas a guy like Ilya Taporia, I mean, we already knew he had great grappling coming into the UFC. We knew that he had one-punch knockout power. But that fight he had against Emmett, was the fight where I was like, oh, okay, so this guy is a champion-level caliber fighter. And the reason I say that, Andrew Gombas, is because the big thing with Volk, one of the big things, you know, with the fans and all that, of course, but the output of Volkanovski. Volkanovski is a guy that matched and surpassed the great Max Holloway on output. So it's like, what's Ilya's output like? In that Josh Emmett fight, first of all, he broke a record in terms of scorecards. He got a, a 50-42 Andrew Gombas which is something you do not see every single day. Um, and he fought the exact same body type as Volk, and he showed throughout those five rounds that he can put up the kind of numbers we want to match that output of Volkanovsky, which is a big, big talking point. You know Yair Rodriguez, he can land very flashy strikes, incredible kicks, uh, spins, you know, that elbow against Korean Zombie. He can do all kinds of flashy stuff, but you know that Yair Rodriguez boxing ain't exactly the best it's more of a kicking type ordeal you know with um with islam makachev we're more worried about the things that happened in that first fight the second fight was a surprise but what happened in that first fight yes volk did better than the odds indicated but he was still controlled for a majority of that fight this is a different challenge here taporia has the body type that volk hasn't faced in years that short stocky explosive guy he can match him on the output. I mean, I think his, I think he's a more durable guy. I think he's got more power in his hands. It's just about Volk has a way of confusing guys. Like I said, that fainting game. And one thing I'd be worried about with Taporia being so, you know, into his boxing for MMA, that means he's going to stand heavy on that lead foot. And we know that Volk, incredible leg kicks, like you saw in that first Max Holloway fight. So that's definitely going to be part of his game plan. But if you watch the countdown, Gomez, um, obviously the countdown talk is cheap and all that, but like they were literally showing Volk, I mean, excuse me, Taporia talking to his training partners, like, you know, throw the low kick and this is what I'm going to counter off of it. So, so they're game planning. They know damn well what they're up against. And another thing, the big talking point about how, well, you know, who the hell is Taporia fought? Let me tell you guys something. I'm sick of that fucking stupid argument. You know why? Because every, uh, champion was once. A contender every contender was once a prospect every prospect was once a regional fighter 
So when um, Volk got his big his big step up against Chad Mendes, against Aldo, you know, prior to that, you know who he had fought? He had beat Darren Elkins and Jeremy Kennedy. So why are we holding it against Taporia? Oh, he beat Bryce Mitchell and Josh Emmett. Those guys aren't on the level of Volk. Of course, no one's, no one's debating that. But this is about rising to the occasion, Andrew Gombas. All our favorite fighters that became champions rose to the occasion. When Shogun, excuse me, when John Jones fought Shogun, he, the best guy he had fought up until then was Stefan Bonner and a very green Ryan Bader. Um, so I'm just saying, like, when Connor, you know, when he took his big step up, you know who his fight was right before Chad Mendes? Dennis Seaver. So I'm just saying, man, this whole, oh, he hasn't fought anybody. It's about how the styles match up. And I truly believe this is the toughest matchup that Volk has had in a long time. Yeah, I mean, that's as good of a breakdown as, as you could possibly give. I mean, if you take a look at this fight as a whole, I mean, first of all, let me back up a little bit. If you haven't been following me for a long time, I've bet on Toporia and every single one of his UFC fights leading up until leading up to the Josh Emmett fight. And I passed on the Emmett fight because he was already a huge favorite. But it should be no surprise that I'm picking him here. You know, I think it's a changing of the guard. He's much younger. He's taken way less damage. And another point I would like to add on to every, because everything you said is everything I'm thinking from the step ups in competition to the damage to just how well rounded Taporia is. He's a very, very, very good submission grappler. He's a very good striker, crisp hands. One more thing that I don't like about Volk, not that I don't like about Volk, that I'm concerned about from. Uh, from his side is that he's bounced up and down between 145 and 155 multiple times now and he's gotten knocked out at 155 so I think a big weight cut like that when you've already put on the size to go up to 55 taking it off to go back down to 45 up again down again especially at the age he is like maybe if he was 25 instead of 35 I'd be a little bit more let I'd look past it a little bit easier but you know he was KO'd a few months ago up at 155 he's gone back down to 145 now he's been pretty open about some of the mental hurdles he's had to go through and you know i, I wish him all the best in that i'm not saying that every person every fighter doesn't go through mental hurdles but when you're talking about that stuff leading up to a title fight against a straight-up killer who's in his prime i mean it's just a whole other discussion especially when you know volkanovsky's He's made his money. You know, he's set. He has his legacy. A lot of people think he's the best featherweight of all time. He went up and tried the 55 thing. He gave Islam a great fight that first time. I just think these two are in such different places in their career, whereas Taporia, you know, he's on the younger side. He still has that undefeated aura. And there's a different confidence level that comes being undefeated. And Volkanovsky has it fresh in his head that he just lost to Makachev for the second time in a row. Again, not discrediting anything Volk's done. He's had an amazing career. I just think it's at the tail end. I think Ilya gets it done. I, I actually think he knocks him out on the earlier side. Yeah, and, and I don't want to be the guy who, you know, again, like I told you all earlier, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychologist. So as far as is he coming back too soon from a head kick, like knockout loss, I'm not going to be the one to debate that. And not just because I'm not a doctor, Andrew, but because I liked Ilya in this matchup before. He got head kick knocked out. So to me, whatever. And then the other thing about him, you know, drinking every day and doing all that. Look, obviously, man, it doesn't matter, you know, how strong of a man you are or this or that. We all go through our ups and downs. And I wish Volk nothing but the best. 
and I'm not going to be the guy to, you know, bring it up and I'm bringing it up, but I'm not going to be the one to bringing it up, to bring it up in terms of using it against them. You know, the guy went through what he went through and I wish him the best, but all that stuff doesn't give me confidence, but like, I still like Taporia before he got head kicked, knocked out. I still like Taporia before Volk said he was drinking every single day. And I thought that video he put out about him being old is funny and haha, but like, there's also a little thing about it where it's like, you're not going to see John Jones joking about his demise. You're not going to see. So I, I don't know. It's it, like, it was a funny video. It was really well done. Ha ha. But I don't know. It's kind of foreshadowing what's about to happen in, in my opinion. Um, so it's like when you talk about, you know, what specific areas of the game am I worried about this or that happening? And it's not really like one particular thing I'm worried about. Like, I really think that Taporia can compete anywhere. And we mentioned this already on his regionals and even his UFC debut, which he took on like a couple days notice with the flu. You saw some of his grappling chops. You see that Ryan Hall fight. And I know Ryan Hall, I'm not comparing him to anyone, but I'm just saying you saw how he came out with the perfect game plan. He didn't try to jump in this guy's guard for his ego to prove that, hey, I'm a better grappler than this guy. No, he found his weakness. He didn't let him get off on his game. And it was time to explode. It was time to explode. Back to the talk of both guys have been dropped with head kicks, but only Tapuria has survived those and come back to win the fight. And Volk hasn't been able to. That's not a knock on Volk, but it's more so to say that Tapuria isn't just a skilled guy. He also has the heart of a champion. He also has the will uh, to win. And, and that's so important. So I really think these two are going to go eyeball to eyeball and see who blinks first. And in a situation like that, I got to go with the dog. And then on a separate note, this is not indicative of what might happen. This is not a be all end all, but my history betting this belt has been really spot on. And, and I, I plan to continue out here, you know, because when Connor fought Aldo the first time, right. Um, and Aldo, such a legend. I mean, I have a signed WEC Aldo uh, frame picture behind me uh, here. Fucking love Aldo. I mean, I grew up watching Aldo in like my early college days in the WEC. So that's the man. But there's, you know, that cycle of life, right? And basically, what, what I think is when I bet on Connor to beat Aldo, I max bet Connor to beat Aldo. And it was the exact same shit I'm hearing now. Who has he fought? Oh, but it's the great Jose Aldo. Oh, but he talks too much. Okay, whatever. We got him there. And then you remember what happened. Um, uh, Connor gave up the belt. So they gave Jose that match at UFC 200 against Frankie Edgar. Jose gets the belt back again. Then Jose defends against Max in Brazil. Uh, Max was like a plus 100 to plus 110 dog, kind of where uh, Taporia is right now. I max bet Max against Jose in Brazil. Then... You know, I didn't bet him in the rematch because he was like minus 300. But then it was time for Volk to get his title shot. And I bet Volk at like plus 160, plus 170 against Max. Max bet him in the rematch at minus 250. Gave me a sweat of all time. So I passed on the third fight. But now I want to I wanna continue the evolution of this belt that I've had a great read on. And I think it's time to hand it over. And again, Volk, Hall of Famer. I will never say a bad word about that guy. He change the game as far as is because think about this when's the last time you saw a dude that's five foot six going out there and jabbing six foot tall men like he did uh against max like he did in certain spots standing against uh islam like the dude is one of the best of all time will be a hall of famer it's just uh simply time 
to give it to the next generation. And that's all. And I didn't wear a Real Madrid Higuain jersey to uh, to pick someone from uh, from down under. So all respect to the legendary Volk. But I like Teporia here, and I will be betting him in this spot, possibly large, Gondas. I like it, yeah. I, I, um, I think we're in full agreement here. Are, is there anything that you feel like I missed? And, and when I say that, it's not just about building up to Poria's argument because I don't want anyone to feel like I left out something from Volk or that I'm discrediting Volk because the regard I hold Vulcan is, you know, up here. And me picking against him isn't anything. It's nothing against him. It's just. It's never personal. It's really not, bro. Like, it's just the, the changing of the guard, like you said. And I truly believe it's that time. If it's not, then man, if Volk wins this, he's already one of the all-time greats. But if yeah. he wins this, it just takes it to that next level. But um, like when I saw Taporia's like fights, and you know, obviously they've been looking incredible, but that Emmett fight was the one where I was like, oh, so yeah. so he, he looked like a champion. Like, I get it that Emmett, like people make it seem like I heard someone talking about how, oh, this is the Hermanson Pfeiffer situation. No, it's not, dog. Like Pfeiffer had only fought Razak, who I respect, and and Amadovsky, who you know, you know, um, and then he fought fucking, uh, you know, uh, Jack Hermanson. That is a massive step up. Whereas Emmett, yeah, Emmett might not be a champion, but Emmett still uh, holds the record for most knockdowns in featherweight history. Ilya went five rounds with him and beat him 50-42, which is simply unheard of. And not to mention, Emmett's a perennial top five, top ten guy. So to, co to compare that step up to the step up that Pfeiffer took is just asinine as far as I'm concerned. So I just don't view it like that, Gombas. Yeah, and even Mitchell's ranked 10th, which, I mean, yeah. he finished that fight in the second round. He and, won and, and, and sorry, sorry. And, and how, did he, how did he finish that fight? He submitted the guy like where we thought, oh, this is his big advantage. Nope, you submitted him. So, well, it's hilarious because you hear Joe Rogan say right before he submits him, he's like, he, something along the lines of, oh, I don't know if he wants to go down there on the mat with Mitchell. And then he just ran through him on the mat, too. And uh, just one last thing I know we've, we've said everything there is to say about this fight, but there's the whole, you know, 35 or older narrative where a lot of people are like, oh, if you're 35 in a title fight, it's going to go bad for you. And I just want to say that I don't like that's not has pretty much nothing or almost nothing to do with why I'm making this bet. Like if Volk was fighting like Yair, for example, I would be picking him even if he was 35. Like I picked Pennington against MBS and Pennington's 35. So there is no like one size fish one size fits all approach to this. Like it's not like, Oh, he's 35. So he's going to lose. I just think yeah. that's one of the million different talking points you could look at with this fight. And I, I'm not saying it's not an advantage for Taporia to be a lot younger and having taken a lot less damage, having a lot less miles on him, but it's just one of like a million factors. So there's definitely no one size fits all. You can take the betting in general and, and definitely not with something like that. Exactly. My arguments are not that, are not Volk's age, not Volk coming off a knockout loss, not Volk talking about being an alcoholic. Like, hey, it doesn't it doesn't hurt, uh, right. you know, my stance. But my st I already had Taporia prior to all of that. So mm -hmm. to me, it's about how they match up stylistically. And I think this guy might have the tools to get it done. Again, when, when people talk about, well, he outboxed Max, it's a different body type. Max is one of those guys that'll eat a million shots. 
and he's still there. You get discouraged. You slow down, and then he fucking puts it on you. But the thing is, guys like Taporia and Volk are a lot faster than Max with that kind of five six, five seven, short, stocky, explosive frame. It's just a different matchup, man. And uh, last time we saw Volk against this body type, he did get floored. It's just you know, you know, Chad. Chad's uh, one of those gassing assassins. You know what I mean? He doesn't um, have the pace or the output. Taporia does, as proven in his last fight. So we can go on about it. Um, I just don't want to feel, I just don't want anyone to feel like I'm discrediting uh, the great Volk or that I'm leaving any convenient details out or any bullshit like that because I really want it to be like a, a straightforward, non biased. I'm wearing a Spain jersey, but non biased, you know, opinion because we do love Volk. So yeah. And new. And new. So. Co-main event of the evening in the middleweight division. We got Robert the Reaper Whitaker. He's 24 and 7, taking on Paulo Bohachinia Costa, who's 14 and 2 currently, Andrew. They got it. Uh Robert Whitaker minus 225. The comeback on Paulo Bohachinia is plus 190. So here's what's interesting, man. I felt like the Paulo that fought Yoel Romero, I felt like that guy was destined for great things because you look at that body type, and originally the first guy with that body type was Yoel Romero. Kind of just looks like a real greek god and is well-rounded can do everything and now skip forward a few years watch out for this kid vitor petrino because i think he's the new you know yoel romero paulo costa type guy but i digress felt like paulo costa after that yoel fight you know he got a little carried away the israel desanya debacle happened um you know what's funny if you, you i know you've heard about him drinking wine the night before but have you heard like the details so basically after his weight cut he couldn't sleep, right? So so he's like, fuck it. Maybe if I drink a couple glasses of wine, then I'll I'll pass out. But sometimes when you drink, it keeps you up. So this guy had the intention of drinking a little, like a glass or two of wine so I can pass out. And then it kept him up all night. So And he just looked fucking terrible. And then that fight with Vittori, I thought it was a great fight, but he was still pulling stunts, you know? Um, I remember the famous quote, uh, something about how like, like, dude, we agreed to 185 and you want to fight at 205. And, and Paula's like, that sounds like a personal problem. <laughs> that shit had me dying, dude. But the, and then the Luke Rockhold fight coming back like a year later off a big layoff up in elevation in Salt Lake City and breaks his hand. So it wasn't the best look. But here's what I want to say to give Paulo some credit. You know, his confidence was down in the dumps losing those two fights, right? He got embarrassed badly by Izzy. The stunt he pulled against Vittori, despite it being a great fight, I feel like he just kind of needed to get a wind under his belt to like be like, hey, I do still belong. And if that is kind of the launching point to get him back to the, the guy that fought Yoel Romero, I think the guy that fought Yoel Romero beats Robert Whitaker at these plus 190 odds. Um, it's just that... If we're getting the lazy, but he doesn't look lazy. You've seen the again, social media, whatever, but you've seen the pictures. He looks like that ripped guy that took it seriously this time. That's coming out to make a statement. Cause I think that guy can win. And I think that these odds are too wide. If I get that guy, it's just, it's a guessing game. Am I getting that guy or am I getting the guy that's drinking wine and, and getting humped by Izzy? I, I, I just, based off what I've seen, it seems like we're trending towards Paulo taking it seriously. again. as far as Whitaker, what made Whitaker great was that when he first came up, he was the young middleweight in an era of kind of older guys, the Jocka Rays, the Michael Bisbings, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like he was actually supposed to fight Bisbing and he was like either pick him or dog odds against Bisbing in Australia. Dude, I was going to hammer Robert Whitaker in that spot, man. And um, 
You know, he's always just been such a faster guy because he's a former welterweight coming up and all the guys he was facing were way older than him. But now that he's gotten to kind of the newer school guys, don't get me wrong, he's he's beat some really good people, you know, where it's the Jared Cannoneers and whatnot. But, man, how many times can you climb that mountain, dude? Like, the fact that he even came back from that first Adesanya fight, got on a little win streak there, was beautiful. That second Adesanya fight was closer. But I'm starting to see a bit. Not not a huge decline. I, I don't think he's well, I was about to say I don't think he's about to start getting dropped by jabs. And guess what happened his last fight, Andrew Gombas? He got dropped by a jab. So I do kind of think that Whitaker is slowing down a bit. I think at his best, he's incredible, super fast. I love um his footwork, it, the way he sets up that high kick, his takedown defense is incredible. True ambassador for the sport. But I think, I mean, what is he about to make another title run now? Like you, you understand that Israel Adesanya is two champions removed, right? Like we've already had Strickland and Duplessis. Now Israel is kind of an afterthought, and that's the era that you know Whitaker was already not being able to to get belts back then. So, man, to break it down uh, stylistically, though, man, I think that I think that if Paulo comes out there with those punches and bunches, and he gets into the face of Whitaker. I think I think he can co I think he can possibly look very good as a plus one ninety dog. Yeah, I, I actually feel a little bit differently here, and it's easy for me to say in hindsight, but I feel like Paul Acosta was never that great, and I know that's probably sounds like a crazy take, but if you look at it a little bit closer, he's one like for actually, you know, I was going to go down the route of saying he has one win since the pandemic and it was against 80 year old Luke Rockhold, but like just to run down this one by one, I, I bet him against Luke Rockhold and I didn't like, this is geriatric Luke Rockhold, like prime Luke Rockhold probably gets on top of Costa and does bad things to him. But he, he made me nervous at times in that fight. And before that, like the whole Vittori debacle where he comes in overweight, he loses to Vittori who's a, a good fighter, but he's not on the level of Robert Whitaker. Like we saw what happened when Robert Whitaker fought Vittori. Then obviously the Adesanya thing with the wine, he gets outclassed by Adesanya and you could say, okay, there's no shame in that. You know, Adesanya is the champ of the world at the time, hard matchup for him. And then you have that Romero fight, which he looked really good in. So I almost feel like that Romero performance was more of an anomaly than like his, his normal or average. Cause before that, I mean, it was like, Uriah Hall, Wash Johnny Hendricks, Aluwali Bambose, Gareth McLean. Like, hey, real so quick, real quick. Let me tell y'all. Let me tell y'all something a little about a little bit something about Gareth McClellan. Do you know what I'm about to say? No, I have no idea. Gareth McClellan. Guess who he has a finish win over? Uh, I don't know. Drickus Duplessis. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm serious. Wow, I'm looking. No, at but I digress. Drickus was like 15 or some shit. Keep going. That's hilarious. He'll have that. He'll be able to say he beat the champ forever. Yeah, and you could but do yeah. one of those proof that uh, that Gareth McClellan is the goat type yeah. thing. Yeah, 100. But on the Whitaker side, you know, he lost to Drickus in his last fight, and at the time it was like, okay, Whitaker's a big favorite here. This is a big upset. We know now that it wasn't anything like that. Drikas Duplessis is the middleweight champ of the world. Like, excuse me, there, there's no shame in that loss. Um, Drikas, obviously the champ. Like, you go a little bit further back. His in the time since Paulo Costa has fought, like 
a couple fights. Whitaker has a ton. Like, he beat Vittori. He beat Calvin Gaslam. He beat Jared Cannonier. He beat Darren Till. His losses are to Adesanya and Drikas Duplessis. Like, in his entire UFC run at middleweight, those are his two losses. Drikas, Adesanya, Adesanya. Two of the, uh, the, the champ and the former champ. So, I think Whitaker should handle him in this matchup. Like, I don't buy into the thing like, oh, he lost to Drikas, so he's washed. Like, I think a lot of people, I think everyone would lose to Drikas, or at least could lose to Drikas. You know, like there's no one in the middleweight division that I'm like, oh, I would comfort, like comfortably take over Drikas Duplessis. So I, I think Whitaker's going to um, beat Costa. I think he's just a cleaner striker. He's a good counter striker. Maybe close early, but I feel like Whitaker's going to get his reads on Costa and be able to outpoint him, maybe even finish him late. But I'm picking Whitaker here. I think he gets back on track, even though. You know, a lot of times when people kind of begin their fall, it's hard to get back. Whitaker's one of those guys I could see him inserting himself back into the mix again. He, even when he lost to Adesanya the first time, I mean, he beat Till Cannonier and Gastelum to get another shot at Adesanya. So wouldn't shock me if he does that again. Um, but yeah, I think he's going to win this fight. No, fair enough. But it, it isn't just Drickus and Adesanya, though. I mean, like, if you watch the Till fight, Till dropped him. Cannoneer had him wobbling bad in round three. Now, granted, those guys are real hitters, so it's no shame in getting hit by them. But just saying, Paulo's a dangerous guy, too, so you just can't be surprised. um, No. Agreed. So, uh, featured bout in the welterweight division. We got Jeff Neely's 15-5, and taking on Ian Machado. Gary, who's 13-0. and Currently, they got it. Ian Gary, minus 210, the comeback on Jeff Neal's plus 180. So they were originally supposed to fight a few months back, and now they're finally running it. Uh, man, Ian Gary still undefeated overall and in the UFC. He's been a very bright prospect to watch. Um, the fans completely turned against him. I was surprised to see a guy with Ian Gary's confidence turn his uh, comments on silence, but uh, that's neither here nor there. How do you think they match up? Yeah, I- I, I'm picking Ian Gary here. Um, I think that Neil's always dangerous, especially from the thought process that, you know, he's, his, I mean, his name's hands of steel, but his high kicks are probably his best attribute. And an interesting dynamic here is if you look at the Magni fight, Ian Gary just absolutely abused that low, low, low calf kick. I mean, that was the story of that fight. He kicked him, he kicked him, he kicked him from the opening bell. You know, I, I have the stats in front of me. Let me see how many leg kicks he landed. He landed 43 of 43 leg kicks. And why I think that's interesting here is because Jeff Neal's a southpaw. So that dynamic's going to be different because they have opposing stances. But the reason I think Gary's going to win this fight, well, there's a, there's a few reasons. And I'll start with the fact that I just think he's overall a cleaner technical striker. Um, Jeff Neal, you know, he's kind of, he's in and out. He bounces around. He has that nice high kick, but I think Ian Gary has better hands. I like his disc. I like his distance management. Um, Jeff Neal, you know, he had, he had an accident a few years ago. He's been kind of hot and cold, but I kind of feel like he's been a little bit more cold than hot over the last few years. And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the damage he took against Shavkat Rachmanov. Because uh, he did, he survived a lot in that fight. And, you know, that was a lot. You know, Shavkat landed over 100 strikes. He ended up finishing him in the third rounds. But if you look at Ian Gary's career, you know, Song Kanan dropped him with a right hand. But other than that, I mean, can you think of much damage Ian Gary's taken? Because I can't. I, I think maybe in his 
debut fight in the UFC. He he maybe got hit a few times early against um, Jordan Williams. But other than that, I mean, his, his striking defense is really good. If you take a look at um, if you take a look at his striking metrics and how they match up with Neal's, he Ian Gary lands six point seven strikes per significant strikes per minute and absorbs three point five. Whereas Jeff Neal lands 5.2 and absorbs 5.6. So I think Gary, even though he did almost get clipped, not almost get clipped, even though he got clipped by Khan Song, is a good defensive striker. I like his process. I like his his risk management. I like that he's taken less damage than Neal. Um, I, I think he's going to outclass him here. Uh, curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, look, Jeff Neal, man, very fast southpaw. When he first came into the UFC, I felt like he was destined for great things possibly even fighting for a title. I mean, the guy, the way he beat Bilal in like 2019 or 18, whenever that was like, that was a statement in itself. And um, unfortunately he had a, de- a near death experience. He had like sepsis and uh, like congenial heart failure, like some like crazy shit. So the fact that he's even able to bounce back and just make the walk again, hey, credit to you, Jeff Neal, you're a bad boy. But the reality is like you said, since that near-death experience, it's been hot and cold, hit or miss. You have these kind of listless performances like he had against Magni, even the win against Ponzinibbio, where it doesn't even look like a far cry of the Jeff Neal that we first saw, who was so fast, so dynamic. But then the Luke fight, I don't know if it was just a stylistic matchup thing. I don't know if he had his health in order that fight, but I, th- I felt like that was the closest step to the old Jeff Neal we used to see the 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 fight against Luke that was like a little semblance of the Jeff Neal we used to know and love the Shafkat fight was a great fight but you gotta understand Jeff Neal came in 175 pounds for that fight not the best look took a, a shit it was a great fight but he took a shit ton of damage so I just don't know like it's hard for me to bank on guys that at this point are hot and cold if this was the Gary prior to almost dying uh, not uh, the Jeff Neal prior to almost dying. Not saying he'd win this fight, but I'd be more tempted to take a shot here. Uh, Machado, Gary, listen, say all you want about, you know, he's maybe not handling certain things as well as you'd expect him to, especially a guy with his confidence, putting his uh, comments on, uh, you know, turning off his notifications and his comments on silence and all that. You don't like, you know, Conor McGregor would never do that. Jamal Hill would never do that. Like no real, like, elite mentality guy would do that but at the same time the kid can fight and um i really like his distance i like his takedown defense from back in the regional days he's been five rounds before um i like his the the mixing of levels of the kicks whether it's he's talking about throwing body kicks in this one uh against d-rod he had a nice head kick um so yeah, and I feel like when you look at those fights against like Weeks and them and, and some of these other fights with lower opponents, Weeks didn't really want to fight him, man. Weeks just kind of we were at that fight. Weeks just kind of yeah. tried to stall the entire time, pin him up against the fence. He still got 30-27. So I, I think that uh, Machado Gary's the goods. But the thing about the Song Keenan fight, I even said it like in my breakdown, like Ian Machado owns this guy everywhere. It's just that Keenan Song, the only thing he's got is he's got heavy hands, and that's. And he does. He's got big power in his hands. He's dropped a lot of guys. He dropped Gary. Props to Gary for recovering there. Um, it's just, I think that Jeff is going to have a hard time closing the distance on the longer guy here. And I think he might get intercepted by something when he does try to do that. Um, and I'm also curious if there's going to be a lot of emotions and 
fighting uncharacteristic, but you can't really bank on stuff like that. So just stylistically speaking, I think that the range, the speed, um, and the consistency of Ian Gary is going to be the difference here. So for that reason, I'm going to pick him to win this fight. Now, next up in the Bantamweight division, we got Marab Dewalishwili, 16 and 4, taking on Henry Cejudo, who's 16 and 3. Currently, they got it. Um, wow, Marab, it just depends where you look. Uh, minus 200, the comeback on Cejudo is plus 180. So, you know, Marab was minus 175 yesterday. So now that he's minus like 220, I should tip a minus 175 uh, Marab ticket, you know what I'm saying, so I can fit in. But listen, man, this is an incredible matchup. Henry Cejudo was one of my money trains when he was, you know, doing his thing prior to the retirement. I mean, the way he looked against TJ Dillashaw, I know you were in attendance for that fight. The way he looked against Dominic Cruz, I mean, he looked like one of the best of all time. He is one of the best of all time. To win an Olympic gold medal, to win belts in two weight classes, defend both those belts, hey, dude, you don't. You can lose ten fights in a row, and you're in the Hall of Fame, as far as I'm concerned. So, Henry Cejudo, always grateful um, for what he's done, and yeah, I love the guy. But the thing about it is, man, it seems like he's in a state of complacency, getting rid of coaches. Like he, like dude, when you watch, uh, you heard of Neuroforce One, the strength and conditioning program that they got by Fight Ready. No. So you know the gym Fight Ready in Arizona. Yeah. yeah. So that's like the gym, the martial arts gym. But then. They have a strength and conditioning program next to it called NeuroForce One, and they're like high tech on their science. They know the intricacies of things that I won't even know the half of, and it's like real scientific how they measure like all his levels. And yeah, then they're doing all kinds of cutting edge techniques, right? So um, I would follow them, and like when Henry was fighting Cruz and TJ, and you saw the workouts he was doing, you saw the shape he was in. It was like, God damn, like this guy's unstoppable, but he's not working with those guys anymore now. Um, I don't know how much truth there is to this, but people I know that live in Arizona where this guy lives say that, you know, he's just kind of training with his friends now. He doesn't have the coaches that brought him to the dance. He's kind of just, you know, like I said, a, a little bit of complacency, a little bit of uh, stagnation. And that's not good because Marab is all in right now. Marab wants to be a champion. Marab's got that insane style where, you know how we talk about guys like, I don't know, a Bryce Mitchell or an Evloev where like, you know, they can attempt like a million takedowns and not get discouraged, right? But when we talk about that, man, we usually talk about, oh, okay, he attempted 10 to 12 takedowns, which is a lot, right? We're like, yeah. damn, that's great. Like, hey, that's all you had to say. This dude, Marab, attempted 49 takedowns against Piotr Yan. 49. And Piotr Yan's not some fucking walkover. To, to 50 45 a guy like that to get and he scored 11 takedowns uh he attempted over 400 strikes like this guy just doesn't get tired man and with Cejudo I love me some Cejudo but he's not in the shape he was in during his championship run and he already fights at a bit of a slower pace kind of a measured pace he doesn't put up those numbers you like obviously he can mix in that disgusting inside his inside trip is probably one of the best of all time and when he gets on top he's super heavy on top and marab has been taken down his fair share of time so i'm not writing off that possibility but i just think the in-betweens and all of that is where uh, marab is going to shine and he is a guy that's ready for the step up in competition you know he's fought two former champs back to back um so why not make it a third um and then one more thing you watch that fight uh between um henry and aljo and to a lot of people it's like wow he went to a split with the champ so he still got it 
Dude, let me tell you something right now, guys. If this was the Henry that fought Cruz, him fighting Aljo, he would have starched Aljo. There, I, I, I truly believe that. And, and anyone can correct me, um, and I don't mean to be disparaging, but I've always kind of considered Aljo to be one of the more overrated champions we've had in the UFC. Um, I mean, when, when you talk about champs that in round four and five consistently they're hanging on for dear life, like – I just I just can't put Aljo up there with like some of the best of all time, <laughs> despite what anybody says, despite any of the bullshit anyone says, because people will talk about how, well, Aljo broke the the title defense record. Yeah, well, guess what? When Cruz was champ, Cruz would fight once every four years. When TJ was champ, he was testing positive for steroids. So like, of course, Aljo has the record for most title defenses, but it's only like three, which is still great. But I'm saying people were acting like he was the John Jones of this division. And I thought it was just circumstantial, bro. So I was never, you know, this from day one. I mean, I bet on Brian Caraway at plus 350 to bet to beat Aljo. And I, and I cashed, by the way. So I've always thought Aljo was super overrated. So for Henry to go to a split with him, like I said, people are going to view that as, wow, he went to a split with the champ off a layoff. I view it as, the Henry I know and love would have starched Aljo and made it look easy. The fact that Aljo was going out there and bullying the uh, Olympic gold medalist, taking him down multiple times, not a good look. I think that even if Mirab can't get the takedowns, I think he's going to attempt them over and over and over. And eventually he's going to fatigue Henry and get to him. So I, I see a decision win for Henry Cejudo. I mean, you mean excuse me. I see a decision win for Mirab Duwalishwili. And even though the Lions moved to minus 200, even though I could pull some fast bullshit like these other guys are doing and release a line that's been gone for a long time, I still think there's value at minus 200. Yeah, this is a really fascinating fight. And I, I think Mirab's going to win too. There, there's a lot to break down here, but I'll just start with the very broad, high-level breakdown. So Mirab is four years younger than Henry. And when you think about age, there's like normal age and there's you've been wrestling your whole life age. Like Henry Cejudo won the won the Olympics like a couple decades ago. And so his body's been through the ringer. He retired at one point. You know, he was gone for years. Um, he, he came back and a lot of people, you know, it's important to note Henry was a 125 pounder in the, for the majority of his UFC career. You know, he came up to 135 and I think he had a few matchups that were – favorable for him like Marlon Marais who's was out of the, who ended up losing like six seven fights in a row or something like that Dominic Cruz um which is a solid win but it, it's a very different matchup from Marab Aljamain Sterling could have gone either way uh again different matchup than Marab so he's only had three fights or excuse me he's had two fights since 1-1-2020 which is again I'm always favoring active more the more active fighter i shouldn't say always but more often than not i favor the more active fighter i like activity especially when it's someone who's henry's age and then you look at this from a perspective of okay what is henry doing here he's an olympic gold he's an olympic gold medalist he's the one was the 125 pound champ he was a 135 pound champ unless i'm mistaken this is his first non-title fight since 2017 when he fought sergio pettis and i'm 99% sure that that was his most recent non-title fight. So it's like, where is his mind at? Like, I, I tend to think he's coming, he's coming back for a paycheck. I know he loves competing, but to your point, is he really going into the gym, doing the hardest workouts, going 
every single day, pushing himself to the brink? Or is it just like, you know, I'm going to try to win this fight. I'm going to try to make some more money. You know, he probably gets paid 500K or whatever. I'm going to try to make another half a million dollars. Give it my all. If I win this fight, I'll get another title fight. If not, then that's probably it. And then on the Marab side, he, he's – I mean, they call him the machine. I was going to say he's a machine, but he's he's the machine. He's beaten in his last two fights. Piotr Jan, Jose Aldo, two former champs. Um, before that, obviously, he beat Marais also, which I, I talked about isn't, like, the best win on his resume. But, like, the Jan fight, I, I think you bet on Jan. I, I did also, and it was – when I did your show at the end of the year, I mentioned that as my worst bet. And it's just a mistake I won't make again. He went out there. He took Jan down 11 times. He controlled him for almost seven minutes. Attempted um, 49 takedowns. Attempted 49 takedowns, which is unheard of. And what doesn't get talked about about that fight is he outlanded Jan at distance 129 to 66, which is, like, incredible. And if you take a look at their career striking metrics, if you take a look at Marab and Henry's striking metrics – um, Marab lands 4.46 strikes per minute and absorbs 2.41 and Henry lands 3.9 per minute and absorbs 3.1 per minute. But if you go even deeper, the last time Henry has like really outlanded someone at distance other than like, I don't know, the cruise fight. It's really just the cruise fight. Sterling outlanded him at distance. Marlon Marais outlanded him at distance. And if you go back even further, um, Demetrius Johnson outlanded him at distance by a lot. Um, it, I mean, he outlanded him, obviously, in both their fights. But the first one was very quick. I just think that Marab is, at this point, he's just a better fighter. And, and he is freak show cardio. He's bigger. He's four inches longer. He's younger. I just give him so many advantages here, especially given where they're at in their careers. I, I even think this would be a hard matchup for Henry in its prime. I really do. I, I mean, Henry, like I said, moved up from 125, got Marlon Marais, Dominic Cruz, and then lost the split to Aljo. And it's just like, I, I think Marab's on another level. I, I think he gets it done here. And I almost, I, I don't want to see, I, I don't want to say I can't see like a win condition for Henry because I obviously can. Like, it just feels like, oh, Henry win is pretty slim margins. And whereas I think Marab could, if someone's, if you told me someone's going to win like a dominant 30 27, I could really only see it being Marab. So I think he gets it done. I think this line can be a little wider, also. Now, next up in the middleweight division, we got a matchup between Anthony Fluffy Hernandez. He's 11 and 2, taking on Roman Kopilov, who's 12 and 2. Currently, they got it. Anthony Hernandez minus 210. The comeback on Roman Kopilov is plus 180. So Anthony was minus 150, then he was minus 170, and now. He's minus 210. So now is probably a good time to tip a minus 150 bet on uh, Hernandez. What, what do you think about this matchup? Yeah, so I don't know what else to say other than I think this is a slam dunk. I really do. I think that the true price of this fight might sound crazy. I think Fluffy Hernandez should be a minus 350, minus 400 favorite here. Um, for a number of reasons. But let's just start from the dynamic of this fight. Roman Kopilov, he's a good striker. I don't think he's a great striker. Um, if you take a look at the Claudio Ribeiro fight, really close before the knockout. I think technically Ribeiro won the first round on two scorecards. And none of us are sitting here saying Ribeiro is a world beater. The Frem fight, again, he was a big favorite in that fight. Josh Frem, not the best 
caliber fighter, but even that at distance was only 47-37. And then if you look a little bit further back in Roman Kopolov's career, he, you know, he got submitted by Carl Roberson. He was a huge underdog against Albert Duraev. Duraev won a unanimous decision, controlled him for over five minutes. And then his wins are Alessio DiCirico, Puna Soriano, Claudia Ribeiro, and Josh Fram. Now he's getting a fight with Fluffy Hernandez, who's had a very interesting career trajectory. He started out in the UFC one and two. And it's this is funny. Four years ago, or five years ago, he I actually cashed an underdog bet on Marcus Perez against him, which is really funny to think about in retrospect. Because now I rate Fluffy Hernandez really, really high. He has some some really solid wins, whereas I feel like Kopalov doesn't have any of those. So, like for example, Jung Young Park, he took him down six times. He submitted him. Hadolfo Fiera, we saw what he's capable of this past weekend. Elite BJJ player. Hadolfo is a huge favorite. Took him down. Fluffy just put pace, pace, cardio, cardio. And then you have the Barry Alt performance, the Frem performance. I said Frem is not great, which he's not. But then you get to a guy like Edmund Shabazian, who at one point, people were thinking that Ed, Edmund was future champ material. And Fluffy goes out there and takes him down six times. Basically, I don't want to say he made him quit, but – by the end of that fight, it looked like Shabazzian didn't want to be there anymore. He got him out of there. And if, again, um, I have a lot to say about this fight. So I'm just going to – my thoughts are all over the place, but hopefully people get something out of it. In general, give me pressure wrestle, pressure cardio pace wrestlers over kickboxers that are going to put their back up against the fence. Hernandez took down Edmund Shabazzian six times. He took down Barrial eight times. He took down Fremd eight times. He took down Jung Young Park six times. I haven't seen anything from Kopalov that makes me think that he has more, he has any real probability to win this fight outside of a first round knockout. I think that Hernandez has a huge cardio edge here. You could find multiple Kopalov fights where he literally has his hands on his knees in the octagon because he's tired. And Hernandez isn't going to stand at distance and strike with him. Hernandez is going to put him to the fence. He's going to shoot. He's going to hold his head on the ground. He's going to tire him out. I think he's going to wear on him. I think he's going to finish him. And again, people will watch the Kopalov versus Frem fight and say, oh, Kopalov's takedown defense got better. He was just fighting Josh Fremd, and that's not to disrespect Josh Fremd, but even Fremd got in on his legs, and I'm like, if Fluffy puts him in that – I mean, we saw what Fluffy did to Fremd. Like, the, the levels of grappling between them are not even remotely close. There's a huge cardio edge. Could could Kopalov knock him out early? I guess. I just don't think it's very like – like, I think it's a low percentage outcome. You know, the, the two times – or I think two times Hernandez has been finished um, – I definitely against Kevin Holland was a knee to the body. You could say he's a little bit soft to the body. Um, and Kopalov has good body kicks, but how long is that fight really going to be at range for? Hernandez is going to get in his face. He's going to shoot takedowns and he's going to keep shooting and keep grappling until he, until they blow the whistle or the ref pulls him off of him. So I, I love Hernandez in this spot. This is a really strong opinion for me. I think that he should be a big favorite here and, just, you know, there's certain stylistic matchups that I've done better with historically in the past, and this just fits the criteria of a spot that I that I do well on. So I'm planting my flag. I, I like Anthony Hernandez a lot here. And I, I apologize for ranting, but it's not very often that I have a, have a take with this conviction. So I just wanted to share where I'm coming from. 
No, of course. And I mean, it's important to give all the reasons. And and these guys are interesting because when they first came to the UFC, they both had a couple hit or miss performances. You know, Roman getting submitted by Carl Roberson. The Dariah fight was not the best look. You look at Fluffy, you know, I remember when Marcus Maluco dangled off his neck. Even his win against Zhang Young Park, he got hurt really bad early in the fight. The Kevin Holland fight didn't even stand a chance. So to go from that and then same with Roman to where they are now meeting for, you know, a top 15 spot, you love to see it. And it's just polar opposite styles. Roman, man, he's looked a lot more dangerous than he uh, than he initially did. And um, obviously, I love his punching. I love his kicking. It's just about what's his takedown defense like now? It's been a few years since those losses, um, but he hasn't really had the proper opponent to test him there. I mean, Josh Fremd is a D3 wrestler, which I I, I respect, but, it, but right? I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm pretty sure he's a D3 wrestler. Um, but but the thing about it is Josh Frem with his body style, that kind of like what is he like six four, six five, like lanky, like it's just a different body style to Hernandez. Hernandez is a little bit more thick, a little bit more lower body under him, which is gonna you know, obviously translate to more takedowns. Um, and then you mentioned all the takedown stats that Anthony's been putting up. How about the fact that he submitted Rodolfo Vieira now? You could say, oh, but Adolfo gasped, but I don't give a fuck if he gasped or what the case was. You submit Adolfo Vieira, hey, like much respect, man. Like Adolfo could have could have not tapped and went to sleep, and it was still it would have still been bragging rights. But like to to make Adolfo tap, like hey, dog, like <laughs> that's legit. I love this kid's anaconda guillotine darts. All his front headlock series are very on point, um, and. Yeah, to me, it's just kind of like more show me from Roman, like show me that because like Roman's like our kind of like perspective on him went from like it went from like bum to world beater. Right. Like and and I don't mean that we view him as a world beater. What I mean is that these last few performances have just been he's like on like a what a five fight KO streak. Like so he's been running through people like that's how you rebound from those first two fights where we thought, okay, yeah, this ain't going to pan out. This is one of those fraud Russians and mm-hmm. ah, dog, he, he can bang. Um, and Anthony is really coming to his own, developed his own style, which is a style that wins a lot of fights, especially when you talk about someone else on this card, like a Marab, et cetera. Anthony has got the middleweight version of that. So yeah, I'm rooting for you. I know you're big in this spot. Um, and, and I just want to kind of sit back and watch, if Roman's made those kind of improvements, because I do think if he can stuff, it will be interesting on the feet. Like I, I truly believe that. It's just you th- you're convinced that, bro, he ain't stopping shit. So I'm excited about this. I'll go with Anthony as well, and let's see what happens. Yep, should be fun. I'm. I'm I mean, I, I can hardly sleep at night. I'm so excited for this fight. <laughs> Literally, bro. It sounds crazy, but like I I've been thinking about this fight since they announced it. I, I've just been waiting to sink my teeth in and now it's fight week and it's on a big card and you know, there's a lot of fights to be excited about, but for me, I mean, paper this, I'd buy the pay-per-view alone for this one just because it, it's not every day that I, I have conviction like this. And not only is it not every day, I mean, there could be like a year that there could be a year that goes by where I don't have as a strong of an opinion as I do right now. So it excites me. I, I love talking about it, but like you said, there's a lot of good fights on this card. So um, hit me with what's next. Absolutely. And hopefully uh, this hits you with like 10 steak dinners in a row because uh, you deserve uh-huh. it, my man. So Appreciate next that. up in the strawweight division, we got Amanda Lamo. She's 13 and three taking on Mackenzie Dern, who's 13 and four. 
Currently, they got it. Amanda Lamosh minus 125. The comeback on Mackenzie Dern is plus 105. Uh, interesting because after Angela, excuse me, after Mackenzie Dern's performance over Angela, I was thinking like, hey, this might be Mackenzie 2.0. That pace she put up was just relentless. All five rounds, I was like, okay, like she learned from her Yan Shaunan loss. She learned from her Marina Rodriguez loss. I was like, okay. So then I bet her in the Andrade fight, which was like one of the worst bets of, of that year. And little did I know, I found out after I placed the bet that she parted ways with her coach, uh, Jason Perlo, the guy that had like made those big improvements in McKenzie's game where you saw that amazing performance against Angela Hill. Perillo also responsible for UFC legends, Bisbing, BJ Penn, currently the, the boxing coach of Marlon Chito Vera, who's about to fight for a world title. So I was thinking Mackenzie was on the up, and apparently she left Perillo. I don't know the whole story. If someone knows, let me know in the comments. Did she fire Perillo? Because we're on the street from like back in the day, like even in the MMA lab days, was that Mackenzie was that super talented fighter, but just didn't have the work ethic. Like I remember I heard a sean o'malley interview and um someone was asking him about who he's been training with and they're like oh what about mackenzie dern and he's like mackenzie at the gym <laughs> you know like so she's like one of those talented people that doesn't work that hard type ordeal and then with lamosh she brings kind of a different kind of power to the women's divisions let alone at strawway which you don't often see women knocking other women down and out so you love to see that stuff but then you see her get standing arm triangled in a fight and like little things like that and um even i know she got submitted again uh earlier like again was it was it leslie smith a few years back um i know it was like in two different weight classes yeah yeah it was oh it was standing elbows tko actually and i know wow. that was like two weight classes up but just say she's kind of like hit or miss like when she can bully you when she can be like the alpha in there like these girls don't like that power but I have questions about the grappling. Obviously, that you saw that clinic Yan Jan put on her. Um, and while Lamosh could absolutely drop McKenzie, could do some stuff to her standing, it might be a one takedown situation. It might be a one submission attempt situation for McKenzie to win. I'm just, man, I was so excited about McKenzie working with Jason Perillo. Uh, cause you like, can you agree with me? Despite it being Angela Hill. That's, that performance was a big step in the right direction, right? 100%. And to go from that and then you leave the coach that got you to that level and now you're training with your boyfriend in your garage and doing the whole bit, it's just hard to have any confidence. But stylistically, if McKenzie doesn't get flatlined, it might only take one opportunity on the ground to finish this. So I'm going to lean with McKenzie a little bit, but uh, after that last one, show me, girl, you know? Yeah, it's a really interesting fight. I expected to like Lamos a lot when I went in the tape because, you know, I, I backed Andrade against Stern and I felt like that fight was even easier than I anticipated it. And Dern's had a lot of the same problems for a long time. She, her jujitsu is second to none. She's, you know, she bites down on the mouthpiece and she's aggressive. So she checks that box. Her wrestling's no good and her striking isn't very good, like te technical wise. You know, when she strikes, she bites down, she throws, she can land some shots, whatever. But her technical striking isn't anything to write home about. And she hasn't really improved her wrestling ever. And if I was like her coach, I'd say, forget the striking. Like, you learn how to wrestle, you're going to submit everyone in the first round. Like, one takedown, it's probably going to be the round, if not the fight. But she had zero 
answer for Andrade's leg kicks, like zero. She would just let her kick her in the leg, pick her leg up, and, and that was kind of it. So I feel like if Lamos came into this fight with like this really smart, sharp game plan of I'm going to stay upright, I'm going to kick her leg, I'm going to circle, I'm going to stay upright, I'm going to kick her leg, I'm going to circle, she could look like a huge favorite here. But what's concerning for me on the Lamos side is – when she fought Zhang, and I, I know Zhang is the best in the world. Like she's, I'm not saying Dern and Zhang are the same. So just if you're watching this, bear with me here through this comparison. And I don't want you to jump to conclusions and say, oh, he's, he thinks Dern is Zhang. They're, they're going to jump to the to conclusions even after you explain <laughs> your thoughts. <laughs> so what, I, what I'm going to say here is Lamos was almost like flopping to her back against Zhang. Like the way it's not that Zhang took her down because Zhang's a tank. Zhang's a tank. She's a really good fighter. She's the best fighter. Zhang, it's not that Zhang took her down. It's the way that she was ending up on bottom. Lamos, you know, they'd be in these positions, like 50 50 positions on the feet. And Lamos would almost flop to her back. Like I almost couldn't believe it when I was watching the tape. And I was like, is this just a mental lapse? Is this the pressure of a title fight? Is this because it's Zhang? Or is this just. I don't know what it was, but that really is what dissuade me from backing her in this spot. I, I think this is as close to a coin flip fight as you could really get because I could see a scenario like either girl could look like a big favorite here. If Lamos does her flop into the back thing, Dern could submit her anytime she gets on top of her. She could ride her out for the round. But if Lamos comes in there and she fights smart and she prioritizes leg kicks, she could chew up Dern's leg. She could crack her on the feet. Lamos hits very hard. And, you know, Dern's coming off a knockout lost on dry. So it, it's a really tough fight for me. I'm staying away from this one. I'm very interested to see Lamos's game plan and interested to see how Dern adjusts from kind of just getting dominated in her last fight. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. I think it's a, it's a really good matchup. Like I'm glad this is one of those fights where I'm glad they put these two together because whoever loses this fight is, you know, going to drop out of any kind of top contention and whoever wins kind of stays a little bit relevant. You know, I know Lameless isn't getting another shot at Zhang anytime soon, but at least whoever wins this fight is going to hang around like the top five, top seven in the division where I think whoever loses is kind of done forever. So I'm excited for this one. Now, next up in the heavyweight division, we got a matchup between Marcos Rogerio de Lima Pezao. He's 21 and 9. Taking on Justin Taffa, who's 7 and 3. Currently, they got it. Marcos Rogerio de Lima Pezao, minus 140. The comeback on Justin Taffa is plus 120. I know historically you've had a really good read on Marcos Rogerio de Lima Pezao. So tell us your opinion on this. Yeah, this is funny, but and I I had no idea, but I was looking back at my bet MMA. I'm pretty sure I've bet on Delima more than any fighter it, like since I started betting. Isn't that pretty crazy? That is. I just I'll run through it real quick if you're interested. I, I bet him against sure. Adam. I don't even know how to say his name. We saw Vicerek. Vicerek. Do you remember that card? That was when um pretty sure that was the night Daniel Cormier fought Derek Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I bet him I there. I bet him against Ben Sassoli, who he beat. I bet him against um Ben Rothwell is an underdog who he beat. I bet him against Ivanov, who I thought he beat, but he didn't. I bet him against Darlovsky, who he beat. I bet him against Waldo Cortez Acosta, who he beat. And I finally got the hammer dropped on me. I bet him against Derek Lewis. I beat the line by a dollar, got knocked out. I think he's going to win this fight. And, you know, there's definitely some concerns when you're fighting a guy like Justin Taffa, right? Because his power is really, really good. He's a big left hand. 
Um, but I think there's a lot of holes in Tafa's game. His takedown defense and his grappling are still pretty big question marks, which is funny considering the fact that he's been he's had one, two, three, four, five, six, eight UFC fights. This is his this is his ninth UFC fight, and we haven't even seen much of him in the grappling part, which is just hilarious. I mean, if you look at his last four fights, Harry Hunsucker, Parker Porter. Austin Lane and Austin Lane. So I think some people are looking at this matchup and they're saying, you know, Toph is on this little winning streak. But if you peel back the onion a little bit, he has a one minute and 22 second knockout, a one minute and five second knockout, a one minute and 54 second knockout. If you go back a little further, he's losing decisions to Jared Vandera and Carlos Felipe, who aren't even UFC caliber. Um, and he, he was even knocked out by Jorgen DeCastro, who's also not UFC caliber. I think Rogerio de Lima is better everywhere. He's definitely going to have to mind his P's and Q's because Tafa could knock anybody out. You know, um, de Lima's coming off being knocked out. He's getting up there in age. But Tafa, I think if you can extend this fight past round one, like any time – I mean, let's look at when um, the two times – Toff has been pushed past round one in his UFC career. He's lost both those fights to Carlos Felipe and Jared Vandera, which isn't exactly a great look. Um, and on the flip side, you have DeLima. He's all the grappling upside. And one thing I'll say from the Toffa case, remember earlier I mentioned with Ian Gary and Jeff Neal, the dynamic with the leg kicks because of the southpaw stance. This is the same thing here. Rogerio DeLima, if you take the um, – the Acosta fight, for example, he was chewing up Waldo Acosta's lead leg that entire fight. That's not necessarily going to be there here because Toff is a southpaw. And I don't even know if he's going to want to risk, you know, dropping his hand, throw a leg kick or something because of that power that's coming back the other way. But I'm picking DeLima here. I think he has more ways to win. He is grappling upside. And I think the longer this fight goes, the better for him. I mean, I think you have a very legitimate case. Uh, I want to make the case for Taffa. Hear me out. Okay, so one thing we got to consider is that Taffa came into the UFC at only 3-0. and Okay, yeah. so he, he, he was just a spring chicken. Whereas when Rogero de Lima came into the UFC, he was already 11-2, and right? So 11-2 and compared to 3-0. and I mean, Rogero already had a lot of experience. This dude Taffa had to learn on the job. So, you know, when he's had some ugly losses, like, Nine times out of ten, you you lose to Jared Vandera, and I'm never gonna even consider picking or betting you and this and that. But the thing is, he was like four and two, and Jared Vandera was eleven and five, so he had like two to three times the experience as him. And when you look at a guy that has to learn on the job, like sometimes you're gonna lose the guys that down the line in your prime version you'll probably beat, but he just wasn't quite ready for them back then. But basically, I've always viewed Taffa the same way. Kind of reminds me of just that Mark Hunt style, you know, same body type, same power, same big left hook, elbows off the clinch, takedown defense, probably not the best, but at least they're working on it. So maybe it's improved a bit. Um, so it's just about now that, you know, Taffa's approaching that, that, you know, 10 pro fight mark, that's when you're going to start to see these, these improvements because you know, he's not a kid. He's 30, which is still, you know, for a heavyweight, that's actually really young because you see heavyweights like hit their prime in like 38. Like the champ, John Jones, is 37, right? Um, Stipe, who was the champ before that, was, was like, what, 
39, 40, you know, you know what I'm saying? So like heavyweights, uh, one of those weight classes where you can, they're like late bloomers. Here's my thing with, with De Lima. So De Lima is a guy that back in the day I used to fade regularly. Like he, like against Nikita Krylov back in 2015 against Antigolov back in 2016, because he used to be a guy that he'd like tap out to chokes that weren't even locked in. Now, now, granted, real quick, can I just interrupt you? I love hearing when you like mention fights that you bet on from back in like 2016, because I feel like I've been around so much longer than 99% of the people that are like in the space and you've been around even longer than that. So I always love just like reminiscing like, oh, back five years ago, I bet on this or in your case, what, eight years ago now I bet on that. <laughs> it's, it's just funny hearing it. It's crazy, dude. Um, so, but here's the thing. I noticed a big uptick in his toughness. Let me explain what I mean. So he used to tap out the things that weren't even locked in against Antigulov, against Krilov, like go pull up those fights. But then you fast forward to his Romanov fight in 2020. And like, he let Romanov straight up put him to sleep with that forearm. Now, granted, it's embarrassing. It was a forearm choke, but still he let buddy put him to sleep. So I felt like mentally that was a step in the right direction. Now, here's my thing, you know, I'm going to be hypocritical because when I was talking about Volk, I, I'm not using the head kick knockout loss against Volk. But here, back in, damn, I think July, late July, Derek Lewis didn't just, it wasn't just, oh, he got caught. Like, didn't Buddy, like, get his teeth knocked out? And, like, a whole article came out about how, like, dude was struggling to eat and he was drinking out of a straw and he was doing the whole bit. So, like... You take that into consideration, the recovery time, and then you're just jumping right back into camp. I don't know. Like, unless he's just wrestling off the bat, like, I think there's a chance he could get fucking flatlined here. Um, so I get the reasoning for wanting De Lima, the experience, more ways to win, level of competition, et cetera, et cetera. It all makes perfect sense. But this is one where I will bring up the narrative, like, because again, it wasn't just he got caught, like, dude, like, read the. I need to pull up the article. Uh, so Marcos Rogerio de Lima. I'm gonna write teeth. Let's see what happens. So the thing said, my teeth are all loose. I can't eat anything properly. It is hard at the moment, and this was only a few months ago, bro. Like, so. Yeah, like when you're talking about horrific damage like that, and now you're coming back against a power puncher, look, you better hump those legs right away, my boy, or else like those teeth might get knocked out again. Um, I'm actually going to go Taffa here. I, I didn't think I would do it, and I understand it might look square if he gets laid on for 15 minutes like Vishirek did, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go Taffa here. Now, next up in the Bantamweight division, we got a matchup between the Japanese prospect, Rinya Nakamura. He's 8-0, taking on Carlos Vera, who's 11-3. And currently, my friend, they have it. Listen to this. Rinya, minus 1,000. The comeback on Carlos Vera, plus 700. Look, Rinya, he can bang. He's got a nice Kimura, a nice wrestling series. He can go all, five, all three rounds. I like him. Vera, kind of one of those guys where, like, doesn't look the prettiest, not the most athletic. He's 36 years old, but he's like that guy that like you'll beat up on. And then like in the third round, he'll get like a, a submission, right? Like you'll be just beating the shit out of this guy. And then he'll pull off like a leg lock. Like he's like one of those guys. And, and I respect that style. And usually when he loses, I mean, he's been submitted his fair share of times, but usually when he loses, you know, he's getting grinded out. I mean, look, he's got some funky, some funky stuff on the feed, some opportunistic submissions. 
but you got to look at the regional scenes that he's been on. Now, granted, they're more impressive than I thought because there are some LFAs and some Fury FCs. I was expecting mostly like the like Latin regional scene, which is still emerging. But um, yeah, uh, I think the odds are probably accurate. Like even if Rinya can't finish him, I think he can neutralize him. So I'm going to go Rinya. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much to say here. I, I think Rinya is better everywhere, more explosive, stronger, better striker, better grappler, mismatch. Now, next up in the light heavyweight division, we got two debutantes. We got Ming Yang Zhang. Uh, may, am I pronouncing it right? Because last time I, I called her a Wiley Zhang, and people like freaked out and called me like all like they they said all yeah all kinds of crazy shit. Anyways. We got Ming Yang Zhang. He's 16 and 6, taking on Brenson Hibero, who's 15 and 5. Currently, they got it. Uh, Ming Zhang Yang. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they got Ming Yang Zhang, minus 130. The comeback on Brendison is plus 110. Um, yeah, this should be exciting. I'll, I'll, let's leave it at that. This should be very, very exciting. Probably going to stand and bang until one man falls. Both guys. I know Brendison's been stopped a, a few times, but granted, against real competition, other buddy, other buddy has not just been stopped. He's been stopped by the person that Andrew Gombas called. Look, look at this guy. He wants me to stop the fight, <laughs> bro. I, 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 there's a couple more fights, and then I'll be done. All right, I promise you. And I even walked him before the show, fed him everything, uh-huh. but you know he's spoiled. So, but uh, Ming Yang Zhang didn't just get finished by anybody. He got finished by. Andrew Gombas's jobber of the year, Askar Mozharov by knockout. Now, granted, the kid was like 19. We'll give him a pass. But I think Brendison's been fighting the better level of competition. You know, he's been going over to Shuto in Brazil, to to Fight Nights Global in in Russia. He's been fighting real dudes. He's been stopped a few times. But he trains out of a great camp at Evoluciao Thai, you know, like with um, my boy Trinaldo, Neto BJJ. Well, Neto BJJ is now at ATT, but prior to that, he was there. I mean, if you're giving me a Brazilian versus a Chinese dude, unless this Chinese dude is like God's gift of fighting, I'm going with the Brazilian dude. And they got similar records, similar styles. I just think that Zhang is too open to be hit. Not that, you know, Brendison isn't, but I just think Brendison's going to knock this guy out. That's it. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. It's a hilarious fight. Both guys debut. I'm pretty sure both guys cashed as like huge underdogs too in their last fight, um, at least in the, in their last couple fights. But I slightly favor Brenson as well. You know, just give me Brazil over China and MMA in general. But also, you know, Brent. I hope I'm saying his name right. Brenson Ribeiro. He's also six inches longer. Um, I think he probably is a better training situation. Don't get me wrong. Either one of these guys could knock the other out, and I, I definitely don't recommend going and placing any big wagers here. But I, I am picking Riviera here. I, I think the length. I think probably a better training situation. I think um, probably a little bit better process as well. So I'm going to go with him, but it, it's yeah. a tough one. But speaking of Brazil and China, when it comes to the women, though, I, I got the Chinese women all day over the Brazilian women. Go. Give me Zhao Nan and, and Wiley all day, but – the males, different story. Now, next up in the welterweight division, we got Josh Quinlan. He's six and one. He's really seven and one because he knocked out that guy on contender series, but you know, he tested positive for steroids. And and it's not the first time he's done that either, my friend. Mm-hmm. Taking on Danny Barlow, who's seven and oh, representing the South uh here in uh Memphis, Tennessee. Currently, they got it 
Danny Barlow minus 185. The comeback on Quinlan's plus 160. What I like about Quinlan is that he's a very heavy hitter. Like he's got that stupid death touch. He's also a black belt in jujitsu. Haven't seen him use it too much. That might be a good idea here because Barlow's got the length. Barlow's got the volume. And what I really like about Barlow, he's one of he's kind of green. He's only seven and zero, but he's got a lot of attributes that I like. He switches stances. He's very sharp. He's super athletic. Um, and he seems like he's got a good process about his game. He's very cerebral. He just needs to cut that stupid fucking thing off the back of his head. And if he does that, it could be bright skies. Give me Danny Barlow here. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a strong opinion on this one either. Barlow, you know, he had that nice performance on the Contender Series. I didn't love his tape before that, and I also don't know how much I could take from a, a minute knockout, but – Quinlan's another guy who I was not really high on coming into the UFC. You know, he knocked out Jason Witt, which Augusta Wynn could have done the same thing, and then he dropped the ball against Trey Waters. So I, I, I got you over Jason Witt. I appreciate that. Um, hopefully, hopefully one day we will never see that happen. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this is just a complete pass for me. I, I guess if you put a gun to my head, I'll I'll take. Um, Quinlan at dog odds because really? okay. I'm not feeling okay. strong okay. on either side. So in a fight where I'm not confident, I'll take the plus money, but I, I'm not going anywhere near this fight. Now, next up in the welterweight division, we got Val Woodburn. He's seven and one dropping the welterweight because he fought Bo Nicola at 85's last taking on <laughs> Oban Elliott, who's nine and two Leo's barking. Does that mean Val Woodburn's live here? Currently they got it. Oban minus 300. The comeback on Val just depends where you look all the way up to plus 260 in some spots. Listen, my thing with Oban, I think that he's an incredible talker and he's a great trash talker, comes from Wales, so he's got the accent, he's got an exciting fighting style, but this guy is a big-time knockout waiting to happen. He's already, already been knocked out twice, but I'll give him credit. That guy he beat on Contender Series was legit. Remember the kid, Robert, uh, the Polish guy that just debuted against uh, yeah. against uh, Ihor? Mm -hmm. So that dude... Uh, Robert got knocked out by the Brazilian that Oban beat on Contender Series. So that's interesting. But Oban's like one of those kind of gritty, uh, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an attritional-based fighter. Like he's not the most athletic. He's not the most skilled. But like you slow down against a guy like them, he's going to put it on you late. Um, and that's what happened in that last fight. But, man, he's so hittable. A knockout waiting to happen. Val Woodburn, I don't know much about him. He was not supposed to be in the UFC, but uh, Bo Nichols' original opponent pulled out. Let me look up who that was. Oh, Treshawn, which he's fucking known for. Um, he was supposed got, to be on this card, right? And pulled out of that, too. Like, listen, I, firstly, Treshawn doesn't claim Georgia. He claims uh, South Carolina. So don't call him one of my Georgia boys. I do root for him because, I mean, I called some of his fights in the NFC, and I want to see guys from the South do well. But the truth is my boy Treshawn pulls out of more fights than he takes. So, uh, yeah, that's – come on, Treshawn. Get it together, my boy. I don't know much about Val Woodburn, but what I know about Oban is he will break you down the stretch if you're uh, – if there's any kind of cardio concern. Val is dropping the 70s. Um, I just don't know enough about Val – and I cannot wait to fade Oban. I just don't think there's the time. Let's go Oban. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Oban wins this, but I'm looking forward to fading him as well. I do think uh, Val back at his normal weight of 170 is probably – he'll look better than he did against Nickel. Obviously, that fight never really played out. But I still think he's probably uh, rightfully the underdog here. Yeah. Now, last but not least in the flyweight division, we got um, – 
We got Natalia Silva's. Oh, I was going to say Natalia Silva's daughters, but you know what's interesting? Both these ladies arguably beat Macy Barber, and they both lost to her. But uh, we got Andrea Lee. She's 13 and, and 8, taking on Miranda Maverick, who's 12 and 5. Currently, they got it. Miranda minus 190, the comeback on Andrea plus 165. You know, I'm not a big Andrea fan, um, but at the same time, Miranda Maverick, um, I've expected a little bit more development than I've gotten from her. Um, look, she's physical. She's actually pretty intelligent. Doesn't she like have like some like biochemical engineering degree or some shit like that? Like she's a smart chick. Um, and she's had some good performances here and there, but also a couple of hit and miss ones along the way, too. Uh, Andrea Lee definitely seems like she's on the way out, but at her best, um, decent, decent striking. You know that, um, I've always had an issue with her takedown defense. Like even back when I saw her fight Montana De La Rosa and Andrea won that fight, like there were spots where it was like, man, this is ugly. Other people are going to take advantage. You've seen fighters like Lauren Murphy take advantage. Um, so I think Miranda's catching her at a good time. It was just, I'm not trying to lay no minus 190 here. So to me, it's a pass. Yeah, pass for me also. I, I felt like Lee looked significantly declined in her last fight, even though, like, we know Silva is a good prospect. I, she just – it didn't even really look like she was in that fight. So I, if there were different circumstances, I might take the dog shot on her here because, you know, I cash Jasuda Vicious as a big dog against Maverick. Um, I'd be looking to do the same here, but it's a pass for me just given how she's looked recently. Well, Andrew, before we got to get out of here, we got to talk about the fight to watch and the fighter to watch. So I'm going to go first. What is the fight to watch for UFC 298 besides the main event, besides the co-main event? We got to go with the feature bout between Jeff Neal and Ian Gary. I mean, Ian Gary has been the talk of the town and not for the best reasons the last few months. And, and this is coming off a guy who is undefeated as a pro, undefeated in the UFC. He is climbing up the rankings to get to the top 10. And he's taking on a guy in Jeff Neal who's been in there with everybody, has had some incredible performances along the way, has been kind of hit or miss since his near-death experience. And it's just intriguing. You saw the mug shot that Ian Gary put on the shirt. Um, and then after that, people have been shitting all over Ian Gary. So now they want Jeff Neal to, to be the guy to humble him. And it's just going to be an exciting fight. Two dynamic strikers. Let's see who the better man is. So for that reason, Gary versus Neil is my fight to watch, Andrew. Yeah, that's a great choice. And, you know, just for being different sake, I'll go with Marab versus Henry Cejudo because I think the winner is going to get a title shot at 135. And you got Henry's incredible wrestling wrestling pedigree against Marab, who's a cardio and pace machine. So I think that, that that's my choice. And for me, my fighter to watch, I said no main event, but I lied. It's got to be Ilya Taporia. Listen, representing Spain. And this is a guy who not just has the skills, but he also has the way he's been talking. And a lot of people are seeing it as like arrogance. I, I really see it as confidence. Like to me, um, I try to kind of like find the distinguishing point between the two, between this arrogance and delusion, like, like Jay Perrin versus like true confidence, like this kid, Ilya Taporia. So I really think he's the goods and man, he's not just fighting anybody. He's fighting arguably the best featherweight of all time. And if you can pass this, there's a new legacy in coming, man. So, and a first ever champ from Spain, which is cool too. So for that reason, Ilya Tapori is my fighter to watch. Yeah. And I'm going to go with, I mean, obviously that's a great choice. I'm going to go with Fluffy Hernandez. I think this is a statement here. I don't think it's a competitive fight. I think he's probably going to get, you know, He's going to be in that conversation for getting a top 10 fight next. Yes, sir. Well, Andrew, we did it. It's going down this Saturday night live in Anaheim, California. 
to everybody that checked this out. Thank you so much. Leave me a comment, a like, a share if you feel so inclined. Make sure you follow my boy Andrew at Bets and Picks MMA. Also, his podcast, The Magic and Andrew MMA Betting Podcast. Definitely check that out too. Um, and yeah, you can find all this stuff on his socials. Anything else you want to tell the fans before we get out of here? No, thank you guys for watching. Make sure to like and subscribe and enjoy the fight Saturday. Absolutely. Thank you again, Andrew. Thank you to the fans for all your support. Truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, would not be here without you guys. I truly, sincerely hope you guys love these fights as much as I hope to love them. And uh, until the next time, let's cash these bets.